So many Americans would be surprised to hear that these COVID-19 mRNA vaccines specifically are associated with an increased risk of appendicitis, Bell's palsy, shingles, changes in sperm motility. Today I sit down with Florida Surgeon General Dr. Joseph Latipo. He explains in detail why the Florida Department of Health recently advised healthy men aged 18 to 39 not to take the mRNA COVID vaccines. The department's analysis showed sharp increases in heart-related deaths post-vaccination. Today, he opens up about his personal journey and how he was able to overcome trauma from sexual abuse as a child, as he writes in his new book, Transcend Fear, a blueprint for mindful leadership in public health. It blew my socks off. I would never have even believed it was possible. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelleck. Dr. Joseph Latipo, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Thanks, John. Thank you for taking time to speak with me. I'm looking forward to it. You have this uh, wonderful new book out, which I just finished reading, Transcend Fear. We'll dig into that in a moment. Before we go there, I want to talk about this new guidance that you've instituted in Florida. Essentially, you're saying that under 39 men should not be getting these genetic vaccines. So tell me about how this all came about. Sure. The backdrop is that, as you know, and I think as any honest person would recognize, these last two years, there has not been room in the atmosphere for honesty about the vaccines. So it's almost comical every now and then on Twitter, someone will put out these videos, and I'll, I'll run into one of these videos, where it's showing the president or Dr. Fauci or Dr. Walensky saying that you will not get COVID if you take these vaccines. These vaccines are going to stop you from transmitting the virus to someone else or playing on guilt. I, mean, I think Dr. Fauci, I, I watched a video of him talking about how, how you don't want to be that person that, that is the person that transmits COVID-19 to someone else. And I'm paraphrasing, of course. His speech was imbued with much more manipulation in trying to guilt people into taking these vaccines. And then it turns out that that was blatantly not true. And even it was actually a, an issue independent of Delta. Delta made it worse. But the waning immunity, the fact that transmission wasn't something that was tested in the primary clinical trials, it's, it's just been an atmosphere of tremendous manipulation, coercion, and dishonesty. So in that setting, evaluations of safety have been not at the level or to the degree they should have been considering how widely these vaccine products were being pushed. So this is not to say there were no safety studies. There have been some. It is to say that there haven't been enough of them and when findings have come out that are unfavorable, they've received very little attention, with the exception of perhaps myocarditis. So many Americans, probably almost every American, would be surprised to hear that, for example, these COVID-19 mRNA vaccines specifically are associated with an increased risk of appendicitis. They're associated with an increased risk of Bell's palsy. 
They're associated with an increased risk of shingles, which can, can be severe in some cases. They're associated with changes in sperm motility and sperm function and sperm count. And most recently, we're finding that they are present in breast milk, even though an earlier study published in the journal the American Medical Association reported that they were not in, in breast milk. And by the way, the reference for the increased risk of things like appendicitis and Bell's palsy, et cetera, comes from a paper that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. So one of the things that I and other people did during the pandemic that distinguished us, we were talking about Dr. Bhattacharya earlier, is that we tried to be honest and we called things out when they were not honest. And in my role as the Surgeon General of Florida, you know, you better believe that I'm not going to stop doing the thing I've been doing during the entire pandemic just because I'm in this position. No, I've continued to prioritize safety, honesty, straight talk, acknowledgement of limitations, and communicating what I think is in the best interest of the public. I just want to briefly comment. I mean, you would think that someone taking on the role of Surgeon General of a state or of a country would feel more inclined to do all the things you just described, to prioritize those things, right? <laughs> yeah, instead they're busy getting their story straight on whether it's no masks or one mask or two masks in, in terms of the Surgeon General that that preceded the current Surgeon General of the, of the United States. Dr. Adams at one point was telling people not to wear masks and not to go out and get them. And then he said, you, you have to wear them all the time. And, and of course, we know how that went when eventually people were asked to wear two of them. And who knows, I don't even remember how many they got up to in, term, in their recommendations. But no, you're absolutely right. That's what people deserve, honesty. They deserve transparency. They they. They do not deserve to be treated as, as objects or means to an end. They can just be manipulated or coerced. One of the things that I wanted to do was to provide a more clarity about safety in the ways that I, I am able to in my role as Surgeon General and with the data that we have available in Florida. So, I mean, just very briefly, if you can describe the study that you did and uh, you know the conclusions and the I guess the strength of the conclusions and sort of the value of them from a scientific perspective. Sure. So it's this has been another interesting thing in terms of how people have have responded and I think to understand the response I think it's helpful to look back at the entirety of the pandemic. So Dr. Bhattacharya, myself, Others were, for example, for me, it was as early as March 2020. I was critical of the lockdowns. I stated that they were very unlikely to be effective. And for reasons that were obvious and were eventually demonstrated, you know, you can't do it forever. You have to open up and the virus is going to spread more. Turns out even during the lockdowns, the virus was spreading. But that was that's a, that's another issue. As people say, virus going to virus. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. And when, when those types of opinions were voiced, there was outrage. Oh, no, 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 we have to do this, you know, whatever, 10, 15 days, whatever it was to stop the spread. And, and then we have to do it longer and all that. Later on, the masks. I, others were 
stated plainly that we've got, yes, this is a new virus, but we have a number of randomized clinical trials on community masking. In general, the conclusion is that it is an ineffective strategy. No, how could that be? No, he's wrong. They're, he's, he's killing people. They're making things up. No, you have to do this. You're killing, you're killing grandma. And, and of course, if you look at the pandemic and you look at the totality of the data and you look at the randomized clinical trials, that was, that was, that was obviously the correct, correct conclusion. Later on, the vaccine mandates and passports. I and others said, ineffective strategy, not gonna stop the spread. No, that can't be. This is what we need. The pandemic will never end if we don't do this. Obviously, I and other doctors and scientists who, who reached that conclusion based on the totality of the data were correct. More recently, we issued guidance saying that it doesn't make sense to give children this vaccine when it is not clear that if a child is healthy, they actually experience a health benefit. Right? There's a huge question about risk and benefits in children. I mean, that is unequivocal with this virus. Outrage. I mean, I heard from every corner of our scientific community how that was supposedly the wrong call. But it obviously is the right call. Other countries have made similar recommendations at this point. And by the way, parents vote with their feet. I mean, the uptake of these child vaccines, COVID-19 mRNA vaccines has been abysmal. And that's telling you what people believe in terms of the value they hold. So here we find ourselves again. We've done a study. We've used a method called a self-controlled case series. It's actually a very powerful method. It's not one that we've we developed or anything, but it's one that's been used in hundreds of studies. You know, hundreds of publications have used this to evaluate vaccine safety, to evaluate the safety of other medications. The strength of the method is that it is self-controlled. So the huge problem with evaluating anything about the effectiveness or safety of any medication once it's outside of a clinical trial is that confounding is a B asterisk TCH. It is just extremely difficult to identify unbiased, unconfounded estimates when something is deployed in the community and different people with different risk factors and different preferences and different behaviors choose to or not to take that medication. It is very difficult to tease out the effects of the medication from the effects of the confounders. The strength of the self-controlled case series is that you actually don't have that problem. Hmm. People are their own controls and what you've, what we've seen, what I saw on social media indicated that most everyone didn't understand the method. You know, people were saying things about people's risk factors, for example, what's self-controlled. So people's risk factors are accounted for in the model. People were saying, raised other concerns about having another control group. No, it's self-controlled. You're, you're actually looking at people and their own baseline risk and any incremental risk benefit or anything that increases or decreases risk 
associated with an exposure. In this case, we were looking at the COVID-19 vaccines. So the intuition of this method, and as I mentioned, it's been used in hundreds of studies, is that all you do, you look at people who have an exposure and have an outcome that you're interested in, and you assess whether the distribution over time of the outcome is random. In other words, you wouldn't think the exposure has anything to do with the outcome, or whether it's not random. In other words, perhaps the outcome is happening more after the exposure, or it's happening more later on. And what that tells you in this type of study design is whether the exposure changes the likelihood of a person experiencing that outcome. And that's what we did. And we found a number of different things. The COVID-19 mRNA vaccinations is associated with an 84% increased risk in cardiac deaths among young men. We had other findings such as, for example, an overall reduction in all-cause mortality in older people over the age of 60, and also an increase in cardiac mortality among men over 60. So they have more than one thing happening at once. But in young men from 18 to 39, it clearly was a signal for increased risk. So that was the main finding. This is not the first study to find an increased risk of cardiovascular adverse outcomes with the COVID-19 vaccines, specifically the mRNA COVID-19 vaccines. For example, there was a study that was published in JAMA Open, one of the sub-journals of JAMA, that used scan looked at Scandinavian data, and there were a number of cardiovascular outcomes primarily related to cerebrovascular disease, by the way, that also used the self-controlled case series model that found increases in risk. The highest increase in risk, for, or one of the highest, was intracerebral hemorrhage after the Moderna vaccination. And that was an increase of 119%, believe it or not. And it's right there in the paper. In these the, are, in these the are incredibly significant signals. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. The blessing, of course, is that it's not a common outcome. So in other words, even though the increase is, is profound, the event is uncommon. But there are a number of events. Coronary artery disease in that, in that study also increased after one of the mRNA COVID-19 vaccinations. Other cardiovascular outcomes increased in risk. Another study was a study that was published in Nature's Journal of Scientific Reports. It was found an association in Israel between the rollout of COVID-19 vaccines and acute cardiovascular events in young people. It's not definitive, but it's another piece of evidence. And then, of course, we've had a number of studies about myocarditis that show market increases in risk. So there are a number of studies already. Actually, there's a fourth one that I should mention, which is a study that the FDA did, but has been very quiet in terms of their, in terms of their communication about, but it's actually available online. So the FDA has used Medicare data and they found an, a, a signal of increased risk of acute myocardial infarction, in other words, heart attacks, 
specifically associated with the mRNA COVID-19 vaccines. So there are a number of studies that are indicating that these vaccines, mRNA COVID-19 vaccines, increase the risk of adverse cardiovascular and cardiac events. And we just added to that with another one. I can't help but think of this uh, you know, study published fairly recently by, by Dr. Asim Malatra from the UK, cardiac uh, cardiologist. Um, he essentially had made the recommendation, he looked at a whole bunch of evidence that was present, including the study that found you know, kind of one in 800 incidents of adverse effects and so forth. He, his recommendation in the end was that these genetic vaccines should be paused, the deployment of them should be paused until further study is done because there's just a lot of adverse events. What do you, what do you think of that study? There's never been a time, certainly in my lifetime, where so many essentially mainstream doctors, you know, doctors who practice good medicine and you know, are respected in the field, are bolting the mainstream message about these COVID-19 vaccines. And that in itself should tell you a tremendous amount. It should tell you that whatever is happening with these vaccines is unlike any other medical issues probably that we have, have ever faced. In medicine, the history of medicine, there's a great book called The Social Transformation of Medicine. Medicine was, went from essentially a very disorganized field to a much more organized field in terms of political organization, concentration of power, organization of how people would actually become doctors and be considered to be among their peers and that sort of thing. And that period of time has seen a lot of, a lot of conflict, people with different perspectives about how, how the field of medicine should be. But nothing has ever looked like this in terms of individuals who were literally previously con considered to be completely mainstream, just saying things that are not mainstream and are sometimes even costing them jobs and repute and other, and other important things. So he's an example of that. A doctor who, as far as I know, was extremely mainstream, is extremely respected, and all of a sudden he is, he is screaming alarm. So I, I, I think and I hope that people recognize that that has meaning, just the fact that that's happening has meaning. And in terms of specific recommendations for specific groups, what I always try to do and what I will always do is stay close to the data. Mm -hmm. Certainly in young men, the data, it's, it's, it is, while our study is not definitive and we never claimed it was, the fact that there is so much evidence that is consistent with our findings, you obviously should not be giving mRNA COVID-19 vaccines to young men at this point in the pandemic. And are there potential exceptions? Sure, you know, people who, are, who have received organ transplants, the calculus is always different in them, although truly they may benefit more from Ebusheld, which is the, the antibody treatment that that has, I think it lasts maybe six months or maybe a year, but I think around six months. But they're, they're very different. Those are special populations. But in, in the general population, it is obviously a bad call to continue charging forward in the face of the, the evidence that we have thus far. There's some evidence to suggest that some of these vaccine harms actually 
happened longer than the, than the time period over which you looked in your study. And I guess what I'm curious about is, are you thinking about expanding this study and kind of looking at a kind of a longer tail afterwards to look at harms that might have happened, you know, three, five, seven months down the road? That's a really good point. So the, the model can only estimate what you tell it is happening in nature. And the way we've structured the model, we're telling it that there's a 30-day, 28-day period of increased risk. And after that, risk is assumed to be baseline. But if it turns out that the risk period is actually prolonged, our model would be underestimating the, the magnitude of risk. Fortunately, we have very strong biostatisticians and epidemiologists. I think that you would just want to be very careful about how you change the model because you're, you're, you enter a domain that's more, not hypothesis generating, but, but highly investigational. So you may find very important things, but you're also increasing your likelihood of being misled. So, or finding a, a false positive or false finding. So I think it, it requires some more thought about how to go about that. But it is an important question and it's, it, Americans should recognize that this is something the CDC should have been doing. The FDA, as I mentioned, has done it quietly publishing reports. I'm sure that 99 out of 100 viewers are completely unaware of this. The FDA has found in Medicare that these mRNA COVID-19 vaccines are associated with a very consistently, and in the booster, with an increased risk of acute myocardial infarction. But I, I think that one just wants, one needs to be very thoughtful about approaching the safety questions beyond the, the primary models. One of the things I understand is cert in certain data sets where you know you have to kind of pull people, these people are vaccinated, these people are unvaccinated, these people had this adverse outcome, these people did not have this adverse outcome. Um, what I understand is at least in some data sets, um, it's people were only marked as vaccinated only two weeks after they actually were vaccinated, which, you know, created has created this confounding variable. I don't know if this might affect your study or not, but um, I'm aware that it has affected other studies that have looked at this. Yeah. So normally in clinical trials, we have something, a concept that I'm sure you're familiar with called intention to treat. The idea is just that once you're randomized to receive some intervention, the clock starts ticking. So everything that happens after that is, is attributed to your, ran, your randomization arm in the clinical trial. Well, vaccines are treated differently and in general, and the, the norm tends to be that you don't start the clock until the vaccine is thought to have had the effect that it's going to have. I, I think that it is, it's not always appropriate to use that. It, it, I understand the rationale for using it for estimating vaccine effectiveness. Essentially, it's sort of the optimal estimate. But in our study, we didn't do that. Mm -hmm. So our study started because it wasn't about efficacy. We were looking at safety. And safety starts as soon as a person is exposed. Right. And it's it just, it's fascinating that it's sort of 
been used in reverse. Um, I have to ask you another question. This is actually from your book, and this was one of the most fascinating things I, I found in there. You described that as a budding medical student, you know, the way you were taught about vaccines and their efficacy was very, very different than, frankly, the entire rest of the body of knowledge that you were learning. I mean, that it was almost like a kind of indoctrination. So can you expand on that briefly? Yeah, yeah that, and that's, that is the case. And it, it's part of the reason we're seeing so much irrational behavior now, because there's a, uh, an expansive degree of indoctrination among health professionals, among individuals who do research in public health and in health policy and, and clinically as, as physicians. It wasn't really something that I appreciated until, in fact, this pandemic. And, and what I describe is the fact that when we learn about vaccines or medications in general, there's usually the normal way you learn about the medication. You, know, you have your pharmacology, you have your pharmacodynamics, you have your, your, your studies of mechanisms, you have data about effectiveness and safety, and it's fairly neutral. Medications that work well, work well. Medications that are riskier medications like amiodarone, for example, which has a, certainly has a role in some clinical scenarios, but has a, 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 a fairly impressive safety profile in terms of the risks associated with it, that's acknowledged. And the medication is the medication, it's not a deity. With vaccines, they are treated instead as something that is inherently good or inherently benevolent. In general, risks are rare or essentially absent. And when individuals feel, individuals who choose not to participate in vaccine programs are, are essentially bad people. I mean, there's a, there's a value judgment that is absent from every other medication in medicine. For example, if you have heart disease, if you have ischemic heart disease, you should be taking a statin. Statins reduce the risk of having another heart attack and dying and having a cardiac death. But individuals, you may question the judgment of a patient with ischemic heart disease who chooses not to take a statin, but you don't consider that person a bad person. That is not the case with vaccines. The result, which I saw and really didn't think much of until the pandemic, is doctors, pediatricians who refuse to see families who either aren't participating in the vaccine program or are participating in it, but at their, in it, but at their own pace. So in other words, Maybe they spread the vaccines out. Maybe they choose to have some, but not all of them. To the best of my knowledge, there are no cardiologists who refuse to see patients who don't take a statin. There are no primary care doctors who refuse to see patients who decide they don't want to treat their high blood pressure with medications. That is a direct result of the indoctrination that health professionals and scientists in the health fields receive at their medical schools and their schools of public health 
and other health-related fields. And if your interest is public health, indoctrination will never be the path toward enlightenment and good decision-making. There's about 15 other questions I have at this point, but I want to, <laughs> I, we only have so much time to sit here. Um, just tell me a little bit about your, your, your background as a, as a medical doctor, as a physician, as a scientist, as a university professor, just that whole picture so people can kind of understand where you're coming from. So I went to college at Wake Forest University. I was a student athlete there. And then went to, was very lucky and got into Harvard for medical school. So I went up to Boston from North Carolina. And while I was in, in medical school, I've always had an interest in policy. I applied to the Kennedy School, the Harvard Kennedy School of Government, and their master's in public policy program. I was fortunate to get in. I did that for a year. I was always a science guy and a math guy. I'd never taken an economics class. I took an economics class for the first time at the Kennedy School, and I took another one. And I, I loved it. I mean, it just really spoke to me. It's like microeconomics is like a language about how people make decisions, maximizing their interests, their preferences, and the setting of constraints. And it just really spoke to me. I eventually applied to the PhD program in health policy as a result of this. I ended up doing that. I finished medical school. I finished the PhD program. I went on to do a residency in internal medicine at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. And after that, I took my first faculty position at NYU in New York City. I was there for five years. I got my first NIH grant there, then moved to UCLA. I then got my second, third, fourth, and fifth NIH grants there and continued to do clinical research, took care of patients in the hospital. And was I was tenured actually in 2020 during the pandemic. So that's the main background. Of course, then I came to Florida and now I'm faculty at the University of Florida. And most of my research has been in the area of cardiovascular disease. I've also done a lot of work in health economics. Just recently, I told uh, my staff on this show that everyone needs to read Thomas Sowell's Basic Economics. Uh, mm -hmm. The reason I just say that is because he focuses on looking at things from the perspective of incentive structures instead of from the perspective of goals. And if you do that, you can actually make sense of a great many things. Yes, that's, that's true. What I'm, that's true. What, <laughs> that's what I'm hearing. I mean, and this, I've been thinking about this a lot because it's, it's, that's a kind of a paradigm shift. It helps create a paradigm shift in my thinking. And I can understand why I think why you're so interested and you became so interested in economics. This is the thing I wanted to ask you. So in public health, it's always about cost benefit, right? It's always about cost benefit. Indeed, this is the reason why you made the guidance you made, right? It's because you know the costs are so much greater than the benefits, even though it's not the definitive study, as you said, sure. right? Yeah, it's certainly likely to be the case that the costs exceed the benefits. Right. Not definitive, but certainly, but likely enough that that is the appropriate decision at this time. Right. How is it that we forgot about costs and benefits over the last few years? 
I think that is a very good question, and that is the trillion-dollar question, maybe. And truly, I, I, I don't understand it. It's, it's so obvious. For some people, it was, it was always very clear. Again, to bring up Dr. Bhattacharya, Martin Koldorf, the Great Barrington Declaration, it was very clear. The school closures were an incredibly costly intervention. And now, of course, we're, we're starting to see the, the fallout of that. And unfortunately, based on prior research, that fallout will extend through lifetimes. So not only the lifetime of individuals who fell behind, early childhood educational outcomes are, are predictive of income and health long-term, but it's also contributing to the, to the health outcomes and the life outcomes of their children. But this dysfunction with being able to calmly coolly and in a way that is free of bias evaluate risks and benefits i i don't understand it i i sometimes i hypothesize that the the politics of the pandemic and the fact that people do get very invested people tend to get very invested in their politics is what might be behind the confusion and the inability to see clearly. And I think that probably contributes, but I, I think it's even more than that. And I, and I don't understand it. Let's jump to something in your book. You describe, you know, a lot of challenges in your life and a lot of uh, anxiety and fear, and that was manifesting in your family. I think you're very transparent about many things in the book. It's actually, you know, very touching, frankly, to read about. Um, and you know, at some point, I think your wife steps in and says, look, something's got to change. I've got, a, I've got something you need to try. And you give it a shot. And, you know, in the process, heal yourself. And then right in time to be able to take this perspective. So what, what happened here? So I was, I was driving my, my poor wife nuts, my poor wife, because of the emotional problems and and burdens that I carried and brought into our relationship and eventually into the lives of our kids. And that was a, a, a long process in terms of the, the evolution of that with my wife and her trying to help me in different ways. And she helped me tremendously, but we were, she was out of steam. Her tank was on empty and I unfortunately was still light years away from where I needed to be to be you know, free of those burdens, to be open and light and heart-centered and, and alive and present. And fortunately, she found a guy, his name's Christopher Maher, and fortunately, I worked with him. And life has never been the same since. And fortunately, it happened before the pandemic. Otherwise, we wouldn't be sitting here right now because it would have been impossible for me to do all the things I did during the pandemic. You know, you, you have a what seems to be a great relationship with your wife and, you know, obviously a very caring, loving individual. Um, 
I, I, I love your description of the moment where, you know, you, you're think, you, know, you get the offer to become Surgeon General. Um, you know, you have a very, very well-established life in L.A. And, you know, you expect there to be some pushback, I guess. And you're, you say to your wife, hey, hey, I just got this call. And she's like, you should do it. Yes, that's exactly. <laughs> yeah, I'm picturing right now. I remember I walked into the kitchen. My wife's back was to me. She had just come from maybe a grocery store or something or or running some errands and she was walking into the kitchen and I was like, oh honey, they got a call from Governor DeSantis's office. You know, they, honey, they, they offered me, they asked me if I would be interested in being their Surgeon General. And she just snapped around and she just, she looked like someone had had just whispered in her ear and, and it was something she didn't even know she was waiting to hear, but she, she just heard it and she just, right there knew that I should do it. And so that was a surprise. And you're absolutely right. We had actually, believe it or not, we had just moved into a house. I mean, we found something, it was a gym. It was in West LA, it had a backyard, and that was really the primary reason we were moving out of our condo because of, there seemed to be no end in sight with the, with the crazy school mask stuff. It, LA, which my wife and I would never participate in because it's an evil agenda in terms of trying to get these masks on kids and trying to normalize it. We were never going to participate in that. And we needed more space with three boys, that more outdoor space specifically. So we had just moved into a house in West LA, great location, great outdoor space. You know, there were even deer in the, in the neighborhood and other wildlife. And we were, we were probably 70% unpacked. And I, 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 yeah, I was, I was tenured at UCLA. I had a handful of clinical trials. Many of my colleagues weren't being very nice to me, but if you do your work and you do good work, there's, there's, there's not that much substantively that they can do to you other than not invite you to parties, I guess, and that kind of thing. And so I didn't think I would move, and I didn't think my wife would be interested in moving, considering we literally, we had our roots there. But without hesitation, that's exactly what she said we should do. And just, it, it really spoke to me personally, because I've had a few experiences like that. My wife likes to think things over typically. It's usually kind of, mm, okay, let's think about that. But the few times when she's just been yeah. snap, I mean, you know, okay, That's definitely the right, the right thing. thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I think that, you know, there's actually wisdom in that when something does snap like that. You know, that's that's our, that's our inner guides telling us the, the direction to go. Well, so, okay, that's interesting. Let's, let's talk about the inner guides because you, you I mean, you, you, you refer to that in the book and that's not necessarily something even many people are aware of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So I would say that one of the things about working with Christopher Mayer back in December 2019 is that it opened me up to receive more of what is around me in the world. And prior to that, I think it might be hard for many people to imagine this because they may not have this experience, but I was unable 
to emotionally connect with other living beings with a few exceptions, my wife being one of those exceptions and my kids. But even that was, 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 was stunted. And really with my wife, the only reason it happened was because we fell in love. I didn't know it. I fell in love with her without knowing it through our conversations on the phone. She was in a different city. Had she been in the same city, things would not have been the same because I would have been wrapped up in what I thought things should look like and be and things like that. But instead we were on the phone and I had no intention of doing anything but talking and I fell in love on the phone from our conversations. So, and, and so therefore I, I was able to emotionally connect with her. And of course, the, one of the things about love is that it pushes to the surface everything that's not working in your life in terms of your, your emotions. And so that started or prompted our journey because falling in love meant that all of these things that were preventing me from doing the thing that is in a way the most natural thing you can do, which is to emotionally connect with another human being. All of those things came to the surface. Why can't I do that? And it wasn't even, it wasn't something that I was conscious of as a problem. It was how things were. So I thought that's how things are and that's normal. So working with Christopher and, and just to really just summarize very briefly the kind of work that he does, it's based on this, the concept and really the reality of chi and flow things that are not in kind of the, in the conscious domain entirely, but affect our being and how we show up in the world. And what his work is, is a combination of physical activities, physical exercises, isometric, concentric, eccentric contractions that change how your how your muscles sort of exist, how parts of your body exist. And in doing so, change the ability of chi to flow through your body. And was that a concept that I had no familiarity? I would never have even believed it was possible. The first day I worked with him, I thought it was nonsense. It cost a lot of money and I went home and I thought, I am, I am, this is not work. This is not going to work. I'm wasting my money. I'm wasting my time. And what happened was I went to sleep, you know, got home, did the routine with the kids, Brianna, I went to bed and I woke up in the middle of the night and I felt different. And I wasn't even sure this was after the first day. I wasn't sure. I still remember waking up and I was, what is that? I couldn't, there was a sensation of something, something something not being present anymore and in its place, some, some lightness and smoothness and kind of in, in my heart area. And, and I, I, it just felt, it felt strange. I went back to bed and then I got up in the morning and that morning, you know, our kids were smaller then, and everyone who's a parent, like now our kids are nine, six, and the three-year-old will be four in in a month. But back then they were, they were 
they were almost three years younger. So there was a lot of chaos in the, in the household because smaller kids, it's, I mean, it, it's a, it's a big challenge with, with little kids and trying to get them to, okay, time to eat. Okay. Time to shower. Okay. Time to do this. And so I was, I was a stress case every morning trying to get them ready with my wife and then get in the car, get them dropped off, get to my office. I was a stress case every day. And that morning I, I, I was, I told my wife, honey, you know, we're not out the door yet. Things aren't not like everything's ready, but I'm not stressed. I'm not, I'm not falling apart. I'm not stressed out. And she was, had some disbelief because this was, I mean, this was over a decade into our relationship and it, it's been a struggle every, every step of the way because of my problems. But I, I just told her, I, I just don't feel stressed. I usually feel really stressed right now, honey. And I don't feel stressed. And she's like, good, honey, good, baby. And I dropped them off, got in an Uber and had, believe it or not, but it's true. The first conversation with another adult that wasn't Brianna in which I emotionally connected with that individual and it, it blew my socks off. I mean, I was, a powerful experience. <laughs> Thank you. Can I have a tissue, please? Mm -hmm. Thanks. I don't want you guys not to get anything. Please show the whole thing. It's not everything. All this, all of it, please. Yeah. So, so, um, so I was in the Uber and I, you know, driver was a nice guy. He had, he had a daughter and I think a son also. And we, we talked about the kids and we talked about his, you know, we talked about his life and I was, I was there and I was, I was with him and I, I, I felt him and like I felt his, his feelings and his experience and I felt close to him. And, um, when I, um, I was blown away and I, that had never happened to me before. And, um, when I got to Christopher's condo, in Marina del Rey in Los Angeles, you know, I told Christopher, I told Christopher about the fact that, that this had happened. And I said, Christopher, if we stopped right now, it would be worth it. Like it would be worth every, every penny I have to be able to have this, 
this ability, this to be able to connect with. I, I was like, we could stop right now. And, um, but, uh, but fortunately we didn't stop and it only got better. Uh, so part of working with him and getting rid of the trauma and the stress and that was, that was stored in my body and different parts of my body with chi, the, there are different channels and the channels do different things and they connect to your organs in different ways. They oversee different parts of our being, you know, from our, our inner strength to our vision, to our, you know, the parts that control whether we are fearful or fearless, whether, you know, we're, we're loving or, or withholding different channels control can connect with them and, and, and oversee them. And we worked on a bunch of different ones and there were still more to do after that week we worked together and we, uh, we've since worked together on a few more weeks in it, basically once a year, I work with Christopher to access more of me. As you do that, your ability to see more and not just with your eyes, it's your, it's your ability to feel more, your ability to, Christopher calls it your, your, he calls it true body intelligence. And, but basically our bodies are extremely intelligent and more intelligent than pretty much almost every living person accesses. But you can access more of that if you're able to, to get more chi flowing through your body, through different parts of your body. And, and that's how things are supposed to be. We're supposed to be, we're supposed to be in flow, but most nearly 99.9% .9 of us are not in flow because we've got all this stuff that's, that's literally in our bodies preventing us from doing that. And so as you get rid of more of that stuff, you have more access to more knowledge and more absorption and appreciation and identification of what is around you, both stuff that you can see with your eyes and things that you can't see with your eyes. And, and yeah, you know, the, the voice of God runs through all of us and, you know, there are angels and guides that help direct our, our lives. And, and that is part of, of what I fortunately and have more access. I fortunately have more access to my wife has always actually, and there are many people on this earth that just have more connection to that, that just have more intuition in those areas and just a gift that they have from God. My wife happens to be one of those people and there are other people like that. Of course, my wife having that intuition and insight is how she got me to the right guy to help me. So, you know, we, we have some, let's call it analogous experiences. And thank you, you know, for sharing, you know, I guess so thoroughly here on this uh, with me. I'm truly honored, actually. Um, you know, you actually talk about this, I think, in your first prescription is the, you know, making better public health decisions, part one, is to the individual, right? Yeah. <laughs> that was probably one of the most important parts of the book to me. I feel like we live in a society where people have forgotten that. Oh, that's for sure. 
that is absolutely for sure. That people think that it's all about the degrees or the titles or other things that are external to you. In crisis, in emergencies, the most important thing is you. What you, what you bring with you to that emergency, to that crisis. So I, I appreciate that you appreciated that, Jan, because it, it is the case. That is the single most important thing to make good decisions in high stress environments. How much work you've done on yourself to maximize the authenticity of who you are prior to walking into, to confronting that crisis. You know, um, I can't help but think, you know, as we speak right now uh, in Florida and Orlando, there's a conference on, you know, treatment of both uh, what's called long COVID, basically spike-related disease, or, you know, vaccine injury. And there's people that are exploring how to do this. Um, treatment in any way other than vaccination has been something that has been kind of, you know, dramatically suppressed throughout the pandemic. I think it would be an understatement almost. Again, how is it that in this one instance, right, we kind of forgot about treatment or just decided not to recommend treatment when it just, from what I've learned from many doctors I've spoken with, it's just like treatment is what you would try to do when there is disease. <laughs> uh, well, you know, yeah. You know, this actually ties in very well with everything that we've been we've been discussing. So one of the one of the the benefits, and not just for oneself, but really for all around the person, of of really working on yourself so that you clear out as much garbage from your emotional, spiritual, physical being when encountering a crisis like the COVID-19 pandemic is that you can see more clearly. And this tragedy with treatment is, is just another abject example of that. So back in November 2020, around November 2020, I wrote an article about the fact that everyone knew at that point that we were going to have a surge of cases as winter came. What I wrote was that, okay, we're going to have a lot of cases. We know how to do science. What we should do is make the best use of the fact that we're going to have a lot of cases by immediately running prospective studies of high-risk people who test positive with potential candidates for therapy. Because of, as you recall, I mean, we were... Yeah, there were thousands and thousands and thousands of cases daily. Eventually, 
many, 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 many thousands, right? We were over 100,000 as a, as a nation. Enrolling patients, testing different medications, whatever plausible medications that were, that a, an investigator thought ought to be tested and getting answers about COVID-19 hospitalizations and COVID-19 deaths and the relationship, if any, between that medication and those outcomes, we could have had that in a few weeks. Like we could have had damn near definitive answers within a few weeks. And that's exactly what should have been done had the goal been to, to save lives. That was the best thing that we could have done Still at that is. point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And the, the dynamics have changed, but then the case fatality rate was much higher. Many people, I mean, many, many, many people, unfortunately died that, that winter. Many, many, many people's lives could have been saved instead. So I wrote that. Fortunately, it actually connected me with a few people like Steve Kirsch, who at that time had just finished a or funded a clinical trial of fluvoxamine. It was a small trial, but it yielded favorable results. That was obviously one of the medications that should have been tested in a larger setting. And there were other medications. I, I personally, from my review of the evidence, I think that early outpatient use of hydroxychloroquine it likely reduces COVID-19 hospitalizations and other severe outcomes by probably at least 20% from the, the randomized clinical trials that I've looked at. Again, basically the main finding is for most of those trials, report a reduction, but the reduction isn't statistically significant, but the reduction tends to be in the same direction. You do a meta-analysis, you it's it's possible, maybe likely, that you will you'll you'll reach a, a significant result. There was a lot of attention on ivermectin at that time. I was less familiar with that medication, but obviously that would have been another candidate for testing. Inhaled budesonide would have been another candidate for testing. There were some other agents, I think even some that were being used in Asian countries that potentially could be candidates for testing. But the, the, the most important part of that whole thing is that we test, we find out, we get answers, and you use those answers in real time to save lives. It's so obvious, it's almost blinding. But instead, because of how screwed up so many people were, things that should have been obvious if you were just looking very cleanly, like not caring about politics, not caring about whether you made the wrong decision, not being fearful of death, such that it's paralyzing and leads you to think that the only answer is to hide in your house and tell other people to do the same thing and that way everything will be okay. When you're free of all, all of those things, you can see more clearly. But instead, unfortunately, there's people have been so entangled by things that are really not aligned with, I'm sure, what they would really want. If they, you know, if they chose before any of this happened, what their highest values would be or what their principles would be in, in, the, in the setting of, a, of confronting an emergency. So instead, terrible decisions were made, 
treatment was stigmatized instead of being just another thing that you look at and see if it helps people. And folks were told the wrong thing. And many, 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 many people died as a result that, that would still be alive today. Um, you just reminded me, this is from an article, Fear and Loathing in COVID America, that you wrote, um, good title. <laughs> um, Fear stoked by the press gave birth to the dogma that preventing COVID-19 cases isn't an issue only of health, but of morality. Even if prevention comes at the cost of livelihoods and duties or increases in poverty and domestic violence or sacrifices in children's educational and emotional well-being. I mean, to that, that sentence really kind of encapsulated what you were just talking about, but just the whole pandemic, but also the fact that the media played such a significant role. Oh, gosh. It was, I would, I would watch the news every day and mostly with disgust. So much of the media did such a disservice to the principles of honesty, of honest communication, of informative communication. It's difficult to even wrap one's mind around it. So many things that were said, including all of the, all of the propaganda about masks, you know, all the propaganda about the, the notion that, that when people get, got contracted COVID-19, it was because they let their guard down. You know, all, there was so much nonsense circulating in the media and misleading people that it, I, I don't even, I don't even know where to start in terms of an accounting of it. It's unfortunate. It seems like it's something that they've gotten away with, haven't really been held accountable for. When people are held accountable for things, it helps prevent those things from happening again. But uh, so far, those things can just happen again. You know, um, as we finish up, you know, I, uh, your book title, I'm going to read it again, Transcend Fear, a Blueprint for Mindful Leadership in Public Health. I mean, I, I hope that our viewers can see from this interview that that your book and your thinking it kind of I guess lived lives up to its title um, and which I certainly believe it does and you know people say that you know courage is contagious and you know reading reading your book I think it, it gave me a little more courage I think oh, well, I mean I mean that seriously that. and you know I just sort of subtly I noticed that at the end I thought this is so straightforward and as we talk here you know there's so many, so many of us are so careful about not wanting to offend the sensibility of the so many people out there who simply just don't have good information. And this is d difficult. It's a bit paralyzing. People have this in their families. People have it in their, um, uh, you know, in their workplaces. I mean, never mind the people that have been ostracized. So, you know, I guess as we finish, my question to you is, do you recommend to, to people who are thinking these thoughts that I'm just sharing right now? Well, I, I, I was really, I'm really happy to hear that it, 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 you felt more courage after reading it. That means that's meaningful to me. And that makes me, that makes me very happy that that happened. Indeed, we are all courageous beings. It's the stuff that we pick up in terms of the, the stressors and, and the effect that different experiences have on us that can, that can get in the way of that. And 
I think that what I would say, I, I wrote the book because I love people. Like I love, I love, I, I love like each and every individual. Uh, I want folks to be, to be happy and to be, you know, to be free of, of burdens. And I think that, I think that what I would say is for people whose, whose voice is calling, calling them to, to do something or to resolve something or to achieve something that they, you know, that they want that has to do with them becoming, you know, more, more aligned with, with who they are, more authentic, freer of the burdens and the, and the things that we all pick up during, during this life. I, I, I hope it, it speaks with them and I hope they listen to their, to their, to their voice and their intuition and they, and they follow that. Well, Dr. Joe Latipo, such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks. Thank you very much, John. Thank you. Thank you all for joining Surgeon General Joe Latipo and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kellick. 